0: You would please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm chapter 30 Psalm chapter 30 Well, I think sometimes all of us are confused a bit between the temporary and the eternal, between the momentary and the unending. You know, sometimes we think, this week went by so quickly. Other times, when will this day, when will this shift end? We get confused as to really how long do things last. There's a confusion between that which is temporary, that which is eternal, between that which is momentary and that which is unending. Well, I want to draw your attention first to verse 5, briefly, of chapter 30, where we read, "...for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime." Well, in commenting on this particular verse... One 16th century commentator and theologian wrote these words. Our own fretfulness and impatience under affliction makes every minute an age. While on the other hand, our repining and ingratitude lead us to imagine that God's favor, however long it may be exercised towards us, is but for a moment. It is our own perversity, therefore, in reality, which hinders us from perceiving that God's anger is but for a short duration. And His favor is continued towards us the whole course of our life. So are you confused right now? Are you confused about how long God's anger for sin may be directed towards you? And how long His favor, that full and free favor that He gives us in Christ, will be extended to you? Are you confused? Well, I think Psalm 30 will help bring clarity to our understanding of what is for a moment and what is for a lifetime when it comes to our relationship with God. Now the Psalms, as we've been saying, are 150 songs and prayers offered to God by His people. It's the church's hymn and prayer book. They're at once familiar. Think Psalm 23, think Psalm 100. But sometimes they are unfamiliar as well. They've written over a period of 1,200 years beginning in the 15th century B.C. to the 3rd century B.C. And they are diverse And yet they're unified as they're centered on the one true and living God. As we've been saying, they are poetry. They they force us to slow down and think. And as we read the Psalms with faith, we're not just informed, we're transformed. As Rob has been mentioning, we are singing the Psalms. Churches should incorporate the Psalms into worship, not exclusively, but inclusively. Because the Psalms, as we will see, even in Psalm 30, help promote corporate worship on the Lord's day, but they also help promote all-of-life worship. You see, worship really does reorient us. And worship realigns us. When it comes to false gods, worship helps reorient us. It moves us away from our idols to the living and true God. And as realignment, worship helps us better worship the true God in the manner that he himself has asked to be worshipped. You see, corporate worship on the Lord's Day is an anchor for us, but it's also an engine for us promoting all of life worship. The Psalms are a precious treasure for the church, and we neglect them to our detriment. And we pay attention to them to our great benefit in growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. We've been saying that the Psalms are a great help for us both in prayer, that is asking God, and also praise in giving to God. Today we're going to pay attention for the next few minutes to Psalm 30, where we will see both prayer and praise psalm 30 is a psalm of thanksgiving notice it begins and ends with praise and yet in the middle there is lament now let's take a moment to understand the historical background look with me at the title a psalm of david a song at the dedication of the temple the temple could better be rendered literally the house and so This could be a reference to David's house, we read about in 2 Samuel 5, or the house of the Lord in 2 Samuel 7, or it could be in reference to the use of this psalm at the temple rededication back in 165 B.C. Now think with me about the life of David. David had captured and fortified Zion, Jerusalem. His power was increasing His army was strong. His family was increasing. If you want to read a great um, summary of that, look at 2 Samuel chapter 5. and, And the Philistines were almost all defeated. Well, some, but not all commentators, believe that the historical background for this psalm is that time that David called for a census of the fighting men that you find in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 and interestingly this past week's table talk magazine on wednesday and thursday spoke wrote about that about david's census and how it was sin on david's part and how the lord humbled him and yet the lord had mercy on him as well psalm 30 has been a tough psalm to approach in fact if you'd had if you'd been with me in my study over the last few days, you would see a dozen outlines of Psalm 30, and most of them got crumpled up and thrown into the trash can. It's kind of like those inventors, right? They, they're trying to design something, it doesn't work, they throw it away. Well, I struggled for a time. But I came to the conclusion that it's best to just let this psalm speak for itself It's a song with five stanzas, and so we're going to sing it one stanza at a time, along with some observations, interpretations, and applications. And before we look at God's Word, let's look to Him and ask for His help. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank You for Your inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word And we know, Father, that your word brings light into our darkness. Your word confronts us, convicts us, comforts us, calls us. So we pray now, Father, as we spend the next few minutes looking at this portion of your word, that you would open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts that we would know what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of us. Be pleased, Father, to illuminate your word for the benefit of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So join with me now as I read Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from shield. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So let's look first at the first stanza, verses 1 through 3. Praise to the Lord for rescue. Praise to the Lord for rescue. The psalm begins with praise. I will extol you. I will exalt you. That word means To give God glory and honor and and praise. And then David goes on to say why. It's not just a blind command. He's got reasons. He gives three reasons that God has rescued and redeemed and restored him. When he uses this expression, for you have drawn me up and not let my foes rejoice over me. He's he's illustrating the drawing up like someone would put a bucket down a well and draw up. He's acknowledging that just as water doesn't decide to come up out of the well, so he didn't decide, as it were, to to rescue himself. No, he's acknowledging it. It's from the Lord. He's prevented his enemies from gloating on him and saying, Aha, your Lord can't save no God has healed him he has restored him and what was so challenging about this is what is the historical situation that brought this song of praise to David's mind and heart and and pen well we don't know but but you think about his life and the times that he was on the run rescued time and time again he's just bringing together that He cried to the Lord for help, and he's been healed. Maybe he was sick. He he was, in previous psalms, we've heard him say, I don't want to go down like others to the pit. And he's saying, you've restored me. You've protected me. I, I don't have the same destiny as others. You see here, right off the bat, is a needed reminder of who we are And who God is and what God has done. David is saying God has saved us. He has rescued us. He has delivered us. Now, is that thought on your mind often? Do you think that just as David cried out for mercy and the Lord heard him, that your life is reflective of God's kindness to rescue to redeem, to restore? Would you be able to describe your life as one that has been, as it were, pulled up from the well? That's what David says right off the bat. Now, he's very personal. Notice the personal pronouns. I, me, my. But then, beginning in verse 4, David Transitions from the personal to the corporate. In other words, he says, join me. This is not just me. This is for all of us. And so the second stanza of verses 4 and 5 are a call to worship and a confession of faith. You see in verse 4 this call to worship. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name. Have you noticed the titles of our hymns? A hymn of praise and often a hymn of thanksgiving. In many ways, worship is praising God and giving thanks to Him. But not only is it a call to worship that David makes to the whole people, but then there's a confession of faith. Now where do you see that? There's a reason David is saying sing praises, give thanks. Because David is now going to describe a little bit of who God is. Who God is. Last week we we looked in the Westminster Confession about who Scriptures say God is. Who God reveals Himself to be. It's absolutely important for us to know who God is. And in this, we see God is angry and God is gracious. Remember in Exodus 34 how God wanted Himself to be described. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Isaiah chapter 54, through the prophet, God makes himself known like this. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion for you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. You see, we are called to know who God is, and God has revealed himself in the scriptures to be angry for a moment, but gracious and merciful for a lifetime, forever. His anger is real, but David is saying for God's people, it's just for a moment. Because his favor is long lasting. His favor is for a lifetime. His favor is forever. And in the rest of verse 5, he says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. It's an image of the night and the morning, it's the image of weeping and sorrow at experiencing the anger of God being a house guest who only checked in for one night and has to leave when the sun comes up. Because you see, weeping and sorrow will be overcome by joy. Jesus, when He's instructing His disciples about what's coming in terms of His crucifixion, His burial, His resurrection, He he tells His disciples... In John 16 you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn to joy you see what we believe about God really is the most important thing about who we are David exhorts God's people to praise him for his long-term mercy and grace which far outweigh any short-term wrath Paul picks up on this same idea in 2nd Corinthians 4 when he writes for this slight momentary affliction. Now whether that's an affliction because of living in a sinful and fallen world or whether that's an affliction brought on by sin, either way, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now Psalm 30 could have ended with verse 5. And it would have been enough. But David is now going to provide the backstory, as it were, to what led him to call God's people to worship and to confess what they believe about God. And so we now move into the third stanza, verses six and seven. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Here we see the subtle danger of prosperity. When confidence in God becomes confidence in self. Did you see what David said? In my prosperity I shall never be moved. Turn back with me to Psalm 10. Psalm 10. And verse... Six, we read this. The wicked man says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. David here is acknowledging in that self confidence, in that complacency, he is closer to the wicked man then he would be the man after God's own heart. You see, David's thoughts and actions are are flouting the fundamental terms of God's covenant with his people. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, as God's people are preparing to move into the promised land, God warns them to remember Him. To remember Him that He's the one that's bringing them into the land. He's the one that's providing for them. He warns them not to think that what they see and what they have and what they produce was because of their own efforts. No, He lets them know that it's from Him. And toward the end of Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 30, you see it starkly put before the people, the choice of life and death. Choose to obey, God is saying. Now when I'm reading this of David being complacent, saying in his prosperity, I shall never be moved. My, my mind went to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar who looks out over his kingdom and thinks that it's all his. And he is the one that, as it were, made it happen. And what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? He is humbled, literally, in the grass until he acknowledges that God is the true and living God. So David, in this moment, whether it's Jerusalem is being built up, his family is expanding, whether it's that moment that some believe when he wants to really see the size of his army so that he can really boast in the size of his army and not boast in the Lord. This is an image of a danger for all of us. Easy circumstances promote a careless outlook. Here, thankfully, David is confessing complacency because he has assumed that divine favor and grace could be taken for granted. He forgets what John Newton would later write in Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Isn't that the truth for David? Isn't that the truth for any believer? Through many dangers, toils, and snares. But Newton continues, "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Maybe for a moment... David is thinking, yes, God's kindness has gotten me where I am, but it's going to take my effort and my effort only to get to where I need to go. But then David goes on to say, you hid your face. And I was dismayed. I was distraught. I was in despair. You heard from the benediction last week make your face shine upon us, a blessing. And here David recognizes that because of his sinful complacency, the Lord's, as it were, blessing, the Lord's favor has been removed. He's not looking on sin. And in his dismay, The good news is David doesn't turn inward and downward. Rather, he turns outward and upward. He turns to the Lord. And what does he do? He cries for help and he pleads for mercy. And so the fourth stanza, verses 8 through 10, is the plea for mercy. David asked God for mercy in particular. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy and then interestingly, David almost reasons with God. He says in verse 9, What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? It's very similar to what King Hezekiah does in Isaiah 38, a reasoning with God. But more important than the reasoning, David goes back immediately into a cry for mercy. It's not an argument, it's a plea. If you were to look back in 2nd Samuel 24 when David is confronted with the reality of his sin when he asked to number to get a number of the fighting troops here's what we read in 2nd Samuel 24:14 then David said to Gad I am in great distress let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great But let me not fall into the hand of men. And that was when David was given three choices. Three years of famine, um, uh, three uh, months of something, and three days of pestilence. And David chose the three days because he knew God's mercy was great. And indeed, in that narrative account, God does, as Jerusalem is about to be stricken, after 70,000 have already died, God relents and spares Jerusalem. David confessed his sin, asked for mercy, and God provided it. Well, David asked for mercy in particular, but here is a reminder to ask God for mercy in general it takes humility doesn't it you see god opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble when was the last time you asked god for mercy it's it's everywhere in scripture remember the man blind on the side of the road jesus son of david have mercy on me you see david in this psalm Not once, not twice, several times asking for mercy. Are you, am I, asking God for mercy? Well, now David lets the reader know that God has indeed answered his pleas for mercy with mercy. He began his song with praise and he will now end his song with praise. The last stanza, stanza five, verses 11 and 12. You have turned for me, my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. And clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise. And not be silent. O oh Lord my God. I will give thanks to you. Forever. The lesson you see has been learned. God's mercy has arrived. With transforming power. David expresses that. In that. He wants was mourning, but now he's dancing. His sackcloth, an image of repentance, knowing that God's kindness leads to repentance, has been replaced with gladness. And David vows not to be silent, but to sing, to give thanks to God forever. He begins in praise. He ends in praise. Well, let's wrap up by looking at Psalm 30 through the lens of the first three questions and answers of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you would, turn with me to page 869 of the Trinity Hymnal. Page 869 of the Trinity Hymnal. Most of these, first few are familiar to you. But I think this would be a good way to wrap up this this look at Psalm 30. So question one asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, of course, is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And do you see what David is doing? He wants to give thanks to God forever. He's praising God and through this image of dancing and gladness, he's giving thanks the right impression that he is enjoying God. We see that David is modeling the chief end of man. But then we read in question two, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? And the answer, of course, is the Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. What is David doing but going to Scripture, the scriptural truth, the books of Moses, what he had to to know and understand of who God had revealed himself to be? Slow to anger, gracious and merciful. David is going to the truth of Scripture for his understanding of who God is. And then, thirdly, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Well, what is David to believe? What are we to believe about God? He's angry at sin, he's angry, and he has every right to be angry, but he's also merciful. He's merciful toward those who come to Him through faith in Jesus. That's why Jesus could say, repent and believe in the gospel, as we read in Mark 1. And so what duty does God require of us? To come to Him through faith in the person and work of Jesus, which leads to a life of worship, obedience, A life of confessing faith and sin. A life of growing in trust. Of not trusting in Himself. Of not looking around at what we have done. But rather looking to what the Lord has done. This psalm, of course, points us to Jesus. His death and His resurrection. You see, when we read about God's anger... We think of the cross where the anger and wrath of God were poured out upon Jesus in our place, on our behalf. How long? For a time. A momentary time Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. God's righteous anger against sin for a moment. And yet Jesus is not on the cross He's not in the tomb. The tomb is empty. The favor and grace of God are now on display forever. You see, Paul in 2 Corinthians writes these words. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation." Paul, there is quoting the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 49. And he's using that of the servant, the Lord's servant, to say that in Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord's favor, the time of the Lord's favor and blessing is here. Indeed, Paul could say and does say his anger is but for a moment and his favor. Is for a lifetime. You see, the favor of God is found in Jesus Christ, and the favor of God rests upon those who trust in Him. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is both angry at sin and merciful and gracious. We pray, Father, that your anger at sin would help us recognize the seriousness of sin and it would propel us and push us toward confessing our sin and asking forgiveness, knowing that indeed your anger is for a moment But your favor, your grace, and mercy is for a lifetime. Father, we want our lives to be about praising you, glorifying you, giving thanks to you. Father, would you strengthen us to praise you and give you thanks. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.